Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, episode 37. And then there was one. Spoilers all books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Mute Boy in England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and we're happy to be back with the conclusion of our three-part series on the War of the Five Kings, which, as we've said, is the plot point that drives much of the action in the first three books of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, and that said, it's probably not remarkable that so far episodes one and two have focused mainly on A Game of Thrones and then A Clash of Kings and that in this episode we'll be mainly covering events that take place in A Storm of Swords, with some overlap into A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons territory. And speaking of which, we want to take this opportunity to let you know about a new project we'll be working on in 2018. Well, with the conclusion of the War of the Five Kings, the plot really begins to thicken as the threads of the next war start to come together. We'll end this episode with some setup, but in order to get us ready for the expected release of The Winds of Winter, we thought it would be a great idea to do an intense review of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons and analyze how things stand with all the point of view characters in all corners of Westeros and beyond. Yes, so we'll begin working on what we're calling our The Winds of Winter Primer which we expect will also be a multi-part series intended to recap, analyse and predict and theorise about the action leading into the next instalment of these books. There will likely be other episodes in the meantime, but keep your eye out for that Primer series later this year and we'll be updating you on the progress, special guests, etc. as time goes by. Okay, and speaking of recaps... Let's take a few moments now to recap how we left things at the end of the last episode. In King's Landing, Tyrion was displaced from his role as acting Hand of the King by his father's arrival in the city. While victory may have felt bitter for Tyrion, the outcome of the Battle of Blackwater was undoubtedly a triumph for the Lannisters. And don't forget the Tyrells. Having lashed their wagon to the Lannister cause, their fortunes are ascending, with Renly's widow, Marjorie, set to marry Joffrey, and various Tyrell family members and bannermen receiving generous spoils from the victory. And speaking of Joffrey, his betrothal to Marjorie Tyrell meant that Sansa Stark would be released from his torment. Or would it? 
The plot still swirls around Sansa, but the stage is set for her dramatic departure from King's Landing, though she doesn't yet know it. As for the defeated Stannis Baratheon, he had escaped back to Dragonstone with his life and a bare few hundred of his supporters. But we last saw Davos Seaworth afloat in the inferno of Blackwater Bay. His fate would remain unknown in story and to readers until the early pages of A Storm of Swords. And in the meantime, Jamie Lannister has been set loose by Catelyn Stark to traverse the Riverlands with Brienne of Tarth en route to King's Landing to achieve the release of her daughters. Unbeknownst to any of them, Sansa's release has already been planned by Cat's one-time foster brother, Peter Baelish, while Arya is closer than they could have dreamed, having escaped Harrenhal and fallen in with the BWB in the central Riverlands. Jamie's and Arya's POVs will be our eyes to the devastation of the Riverlands for much of A Storm of Swords. Also in the Riverlands, Rob has returned to Riverrun, and there will be a fair amount to be said about events unfolding there, while in the north, Theon has been captured by Ramsay Snow and Winterfell burned. Although readers know the truth of it, in story, that act would be laid at Theon's door, and Theon would remain off-page until A Dance with Dragons, nearly half a year later on the timeline. Theon's fellow Ironborn commanders remain in the north for now, Dagmar Clefjaw at Torrens Square, Asha at Deepwood Mott, and Victarion at Moat Caelan, though his father Balon, having claimed his driftwood crown, sat on Pike, planning his future alliances. And we left off part two with a discussion of the increasing body of evidence of Roos Bolton's treachery. The timeline of events has shown that Roos was planning his defection, or at least the possibility of it, well before it became obvious through his alliance with the Lannisters. And speaking of timelines, we wanted to have a word or two about timelines and troop numbers. Yeah, these are perhaps two of the hardest details to nail down, and obviously two very significant items in trying to make sense of the War of the Five Kings. We've endeavored so far to place the events of the war in as close to chronological order as possible using the evidence of the text, and we'll continue to do so in this episode, but we want to offer a caveat. Yes, we do. You see, there are frequent anomalies in details like timeline and troop numbers, which are a humbling reminder of how complex these books are, that even the author occasionally has trouble making all the pieces line up properly. One perfect example is a case of Catelyn Stark in A Game of Thrones, who was commanded by her husband to leave King's Landing and head with all haste to Winterfell with messages for Rob and his bannermen, but who found herself meeting Tyrion Lannister at the Crossroads Inn, evidently over a month later, as dated by Tyrion's own southward progress from the Wall, an irreconcilable lapse of several weeks in the timeline that one has to simply accept as a factor of the perils of stitching this complex story together. Yeah, we've all heard the cautions about timeline, and we know that sometimes we just have to understand that the story is what matters most, not the number of days or hours that we can count within it. And the same thing goes for troop numbers, only in this case, the anomalies can be intentional, a part of George's individual POV structure. George has commented on this specifically, saying, quote, 
The Battle of Agincourt was either 4,000 Frenchmen and 5,000 Englishmen, according to the French, or between 200,000 Frenchmen and 7 Englishmen who were all armed with fruit knives, according to the English version. So I deliberately do that in my numbers with armies and things like that, which are different. I get readers writing me saying, oh, you were inconsistent here. You said that his army only had 20,000 people in this chapter, and then later you said it was 30,000. No, I wasn't being inconsistent. I mean, I was being inconsistent, but I was being deliberately inconsistent to show that these things are, because society didn't have accurate information, and we still don't have accurate information. People still jigger these things. Ask any reporter. How many people showed up for Occupy Wall Street? Somehow the crowds are much bigger at MSNBC than they are on Fox. Tea Party crowds are always bigger on Fox. Occupy Wall Street crowds are always smaller on Fox. Okay, so wise words on perspective there. And anyone who followed last year's American presidential inauguration saw this concept in action. But while we do take things like dates and army size with a grain of salt, we'll continue to try to make the most sense of the action that we can for you listeners. And speaking of listeners, most of you will know that we have a Patreon campaign. Patrons are listeners who provide financial support that allows us to keep Radio Westeros going while unlocking bonus features such as our Quiz of Ice and Fire series. Yeah, so before we get started, we want to thank our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, John Wergarian and Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Rory, Laura, Kelly, Harry Krishna, and Sister Winter. And thank you so much, guys, and to all our patrons. And if you're interested in learning more about our Patreon campaign, head over to patreon.com forward slash Radio Westeros to check it out. And now it's time to get on with the episode as we start out in King's Landing where Tywin is writing letters, move on to Dragonstone, the Riverlands, and then a little segment we're calling Four Weddings and a Funeral, before recapping how things stand politically all around Westeros as the War of the Five Kings winds down, with only one king left standing, though hardly triumphant. Yeah, and our usual quotes and readings will complete the episode. We hope you enjoy it. And now, let's get started with The War of the Five Kings, Part 3. Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. So we mentioned that Tyrion had been displaced from his role as acting Hand of the King, but early in A Storm of Swords, we learned there was more to it than Tywin assuming his place while Tyrion recovered from his wounds. When Tyrion meets with Bronn, now Sir Bronn of the Blackwater, from his sickbed, he learns how many of the measures he had taken prior to the battle had been undone or reversed. Quote, whilst Tyrion lay drugged and dreaming, his own blood had pulled his claws out one by one, it says. And when Tyrion was able to make his way to the Tower of the Hand, he found Tywin writing letters. Important letters, Tywin says, adding, 
Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. And then the news he gives about the war with Rob Stark offers a sudden insight into what exactly those letters might be. The boy is still in the West, but a large force of Northmen under Helmund Tallhart and Robert Glover are descending towards Duskendale. I've sent Lord Tarley to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallhart and Glover will be caught between them, with a third of Stark's strength. That's right, and if you'll recall, near the end of our last episode, we talked about Roose Bolton ordering Helmand Tallhart and Robert Glover to put their captives at the newly recaptured Castle Dairy to the sword, burn the castle, and take their command to Duskendale, there to, quote, take their vengeance. This order was given without Rob's knowledge and is taken by many to be an early sign of Roos's treachery. Yeah, it is. We've made the case that the roots of Lord Bolton's defection most likely go even deeper. However, it seems clear that at least by this time there was communication between Roos at Harrenhal, who in Arya's POV there was evidently unconcerned by any threat from Lord Tywin, and Tywin himself in King's Landing. While at this point it could have been a chain of information being passed via Lord Walder, leaving how and when the contact was initiated up for debate, we can't forget that Tywin knew about Rob's marriage to Jane Westerling from her mother before it became public knowledge and likely even before Rob had confessed of it to his family and Bannerman in the Riverlands. And looked at in this light, Roos's actions in ordering the attack on Duskendale begin to make sense, since the events at Harrenhal, as observed by Arya, seem to indicate that the phrase present only learned of Rob's marriage after Roos sent the orders to Lord Talhart and Robert Glover at Derry. We wonder if Roos may have had earlier intelligence that swayed him into turning his cloak once and for all and sending that huge part of Rob's army, some of his staunchest supporters, into the jaws of a trap. And what a trap it was. The strategy of ambushing the Northmen from the front and the rear with forces under Lord Tarly and Gregor Clegane would prove a huge victory for the Lannisters, with a third of Rob Stark's foot being lost in the manoeuvre. Lord Tallhart killed and Robert Glover and Harrion Carstark captured. Yeah, and we'll talk about the repercussions from this later on. For now, our focus remains in King's Landing. Tyrion had asked, Why are you here in the city, father? Shouldn't you be off fighting Lord Stannis or Rob Stark or someone? And Tywin's reply that Stannis's son set on the Blackwater and that Rob was still in the West indicated a complacency and a growing confidence that the war was nearly won. Okay, so bearing in mind that Tywin's knowledge of where Rob Stark is and what he's been up to is courtesy of Jane Westerling's mother, Lady Sybil Spicer, let's continue our focus on King's Landing, where the arrival in the city of Marjorie Tyrell was met with much rejoicing and was followed by a meeting of the small council. And this council meeting would turn out to be very important, as in it we see the foundations of several key turning points. 
It starts out with news of the Battle of Duskendale, the defeat of Robb Stark's forces there, and the death of Helm and Tallheart. Robert Glover's ultimate fate is presupposed as he's stated to be leading survivors back towards Harrenhal, right into the teeth of Sir Gregor Clegane's force. As for Rob, Tywin states he's returned to Riverrun, abandoning the castles he took in the west, crucially leaving out the intelligence he had gained from Lady Spicer. The new Westerlands army under Sir Davin Lannister and Sir Forley Prester would wait at the Golden Tooth until Rob left for the north, after which they would descend and besiege the Tully stronghold, as we'll see in A Feast for Crows. And speaking of Rob heading north, it's reported that Balon Greyjoy, styling himself King of the Iron Isles and the North, had written once again offering terms of an alliance. While Tywin acknowledged that the Greyjoy longships were positioned to menace the West and the Reach, he does not seem to share the opinion of Lords Tyrell and Redwine that the North is so valueless that it should be ceded to the Ironborn in exchange for them finishing the Northmen and bringing their navy into play for the final assault on Dragonstone. Yeah, Tywin recommends no action in the matter of the Greyjoy Alliance, and his final statement gives Tyrion, at least, cause to ponder. Here's the passage. The best thing to do about our Lord of Pike is nothing, in my view. Granted enough time, a better option may well present itself, one that does not require the king to give up half his kingdom. And it continues, Tyrion watched his father closely. There's something he's not saying. He remembered those important letters Lord Tywin had been writing. What was it, he said? Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens? He wondered who the better option was, and what sort of price he was demanding. And we want to point out that if Tywin was indeed in communication with Roose Bolton, he may very well have known that Roose had Theon Greyjoy captive, and may have expected to neutralize Lord Balon with that fact, as Robert Baratheon had done ten years earlier. But, along with Tyrion, we're still left to wonder about that better option. Okay, so we're clearly on notice that something is going on behind the scenes with Tywin now, which we'll address shortly, but there are a number of other details about this meeting to point out. First is that Peter Baelish, having been named Lord of Harrenhal, is now in a position to travel to the Eyrie to offer marriage to Liza Arryn and bring her back into the fold, which course of action he promises to embark on immediately. What the Lannisters don't know is that Littlefinger has put wheels in motion with the Tyrells that will undo their cause in the end. And of course, we're talking about the plotting surrounding the triangle of Joffrey, Sansa Stark, and Marjorie Tyrell. Sansa would play a key role in the plot evidently contrived by Littlefinger and Lady Olenna to free Marjorie from the clutches of the vile Joffrey, Remember that we've already seen Sir Dantos gifting Sansa with a significant silver hairnet, so we know this plot was well advanced by this time. But the day before the council meeting, Littlefinger had revealed another aspect of Tyrell plotting to the Lannisters, proving his own natural facility for playing several sides off each other while appearing to remain everyone's friend. 
That's right, the ambitious Tyrells had developed a subplot to spirit Sansa away from the Lannisters and marry her to their own heir, Willis, in light of which Mace Tyrell's urging to let the Ironborn finish the Northmen seems a bit blithe. For with Sansa Stark, heir apparent to her brother Rob, married to the Tyrell heir, they could conceivably tilt the balance of power in King's Landing, which was already tilting alarmingly their way due to their overall wealth and military power. Noting the reference to the Ironborn Navy, perhaps Lord Tyrell hoped to gain a platform to negotiate Balon's aid in his eventual play for power against the Lannisters. But Mace Tyrell had no way of knowing that the secret plan to marry Sansa to Willis had been foiled by Sansa's confession to Dantos Hollard, which led to an adjustment by Peter Baelish in the form of the revelation to Tywin that would ironically serve to reinforce his own appearance of loyalty to the throne. His report about the plot led directly to Sansa's hasty marriage to Tyrion, a development Littlefinger may not have foreseen, but one he certainly didn't seem overly troubled by. Yeah, because, of course, he had his own secret plan to spirit the supposed Stark heir away, and his revelation about the Tyrell plot was really a move to protect that plan. When discussing the revelation privately after the council meeting, Tywin also revealed his plan to have Tyrion replace Littlefinger as Master of Coin, apparently as suggested by Baelish himself. Tyrion smelled a trap and said so. The resulting bickering between Tyrion and Cersei, who still had confidence in Littlefinger, would be interrupted by Tywin's insistence that the way to forestall the Tyrell plot was with marriage. That's right. In a neat inversion, Tywin planned for Cersei to be matched with Willis Tyrell and Tyrion to Sansa, which likely seemed like a checkmate to Tywin, though time would tell on that score as the Tyrells would reject Cersei. But secret machinations aren't the only thing that happened at the council meeting. As the plans for Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding began to proceed, it was revealed that 300 Dornishmen, apparently accompanying Prince Doran to take up his seat on the council, would arrive in King's Landing in time for the wedding. So things are getting complicated in the capital, with the long-standing enmity between Dorne and Highgarden sure to be a factor going forward. Another point of interest is that Tywin is aware that Roos has left Harrenhal. Since some days or weeks may have elapsed since he did, it's not necessarily a huge revelation, except when paired with a hindsight of Tywin's excellent intelligence on the movements of Rob's Riverlands troops. And of course, there's his communication with Lady Sybil Spicer, as Tywin also chose this occasion to reveal privately to his brother and children what he knew about Rob Stark's activities at the Crag. Yeah, revealing Rob's marriage in this Lannister-only portion of the meeting, Tywin would say, Jane Westerling is her mother's daughter, and Rob Stark is his father's son. Then when Tyrion questioned him on the Westerlings' motivations, they had this exchange. The crag is not so far from Tarbeck Hall and Castamere, you'd think the Westerlings might have ridden past and seen the lessons there. Mayhaps they have, 
They're well aware of Castamere, I promise you. Could the Westerlings and Spicers be such great fools as to believe the wolf can defeat the lion? The greatest fools are oft-times more clever than the men who laugh at them. Okay, so the foundation for a massive betrayal is clearly laid out here. And now we'll leave King's Landing with its wedding plans and the Martells on the way and make our way to Dragonstone where Stannis, in spite of Tywin's assertion that his son had set upon the Blackwater, was very much alive and not in the least ready to withdraw his claim to the Iron Throne he saw as rightfully his. Reaching up her left sleeve with her right hand, she flung a handful of powder into the brazier. The coals roared. As pale flames writhed atop them, the red woman retrieved the silver dish and brought it to the king. Davos watched her lift the lid. Beneath were three large black leeches, fat with blood. The boy's blood, Davos knew. A king's blood. Stannis stretched forth a hand and his fingers closed around one of the leeches. Say the name, Melisandre commanded. The leech was twisting in the king's grip, trying to attach itself to one of his fingers. The usurper, he said. Joffrey Baratheon. When he tossed the leech into the fire, it curled up like an autumn leaf amidst the coals and burned. Stannis grasped the second. The usurper he declared, louder this time. Balon Greyjoy. He flipped it lightly onto the brazier, and its flesh split and cracked. The blood burst from it, hissing and smoking. The last was in the king's hand. This one, he studied a moment as it writhed between his fingers. The usurper, he said at last. Rob Stark. And he threw it on the flames. Stannis Baratheon and his remaining supporters, chiefly his wife's family the Florence, had been rescued from the defeat at Blackwater by Salador San, and still held Dragonstone, which commanded the approach to Blackwater Bay from the Narrow Sea. Stannis brooded alone in the stone drum, according to San, seeing only Melisandre, while Selyse and her uncle Alistair Florent ruled in his name including giving the Lysini a charter, naming him Lord of Blackwater Bay and granting him leave to collect duties and customs from any ship that would enter his waters. And it was one of San's ships which rescued Davos Seaworth from the rock in the bay on which he was stranded after escaping the inferno of the Blackwater. Davos and San are reunited at Dragonstone Interestingly enough, on one of Illyrio Mopatis's trading vessels, which had been seized by the new Lord of Blackwater Bay for failure to pay his duties. Given the timeline, we think there's a chance this very ship may have been carrying some sort of news to Varys in King's Landing about Daenerys, who, at that time, would have been making her way west aboard Captain Grolio's little fleet, still expected by her handlers to rendezvous with the Golden Company before heading to war-torn Westeros, and definitely not expected at that time to detour into Slaver's Bay. 
Yeah, that's a possibility. And we think it's interesting to speculate on the little intersections George tosses in here and there. Okay, so San updates Davos on the news since the battle, confirming his worst fears about the deaths of his four sons, and telling him of Stannis. The guards keep all others away, even his queen and his little daughter. Servants bring meals that no one eats. Queer talking, I have heard, of hungry fires within the mountain, and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames. There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart, into hot places where only she may walk unburned. And this talk of fires reinforces Davos's conviction that Melisandre is responsible for their defeat and the fire that consumed so many of his family, friends, and comrades. He is determined to assassinate her, convinced that the purpose of his unlikely survival is to rid Stannis of what he sees as her malignant influence. San cautions him that Melisandre has been burning traitors, those who refuse to convert to her red god, including Lord Gunser Sunglass and Sir Hubard Rampton's sons, who had attempted to defend the Sept at Dragonstone when Melisandre burned the Seven. But, undeterred, Davos goes to Dragonstone with a dagger meant for the Red Woman's heart and asks to see the king. When he arrives, he observes Princess Shireen playing a game with her fool Patchface, and the bizarre riddle Patchface is chanting is yet another hint at an event to come. Although this one only works in hindsight, he says, Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom, I, I, I. Yeah, and of course, as we've discussed in past episodes, that's some major Red Wedding foreshadowing of the sort that's obvious on a reread. But moments later, Davos is seized by Sir Axel Florent, the Castellan of Dragonstone, and thrown into the dungeon for plotting to kill Lady Melisandre. Okay, and the mystery of how they knew this thing would be solved days later when Melisandre herself visited Davos in the dungeons. When he asked who betrayed him, thinking it could only be his old friend Salador San, she replied, No one betrayed you, Onion Knight. I saw your purpose in my flames. So we begin to get a much fuller picture of Mel in this chapter as she moves into the fore as a supporting character in the aftermath of Blackwater. Davos learns a little more about her purpose and worldview continuing on from their midnight conversation in a rowboat outside Storm's End and she reveals the prophecy that led her to Stannis. Yeah, and of course, that's the prophecy of Azor Ahai Reborn, which we've discussed in depth in our prophecy episode. And Melisandre ends by telling Davos that in spite of his doubts, he's already served Relor and will do so again. Her departure leaves Davos alone with his jailers until three days later when Stannis' hand, Lord Alistair Florent, was brought in by his own brother, the Castellan, Sir Axel, and thrown into the cell with Davos. It seems Lord Alistair had written a letter to Tywin Lannister offering terms that, quote, Lord Stannis give up his claim to the Iron Throne and retract all he said of Joffrey's bastardy on the condition that he be accepted back into the king's peace and confirmed as Lord of Dragonstone and Storm's End and to seal the bargain by wedding Shireen to Joffrey's brother Tommen. 
Lord Alastair qualified his offer by complaining to Davos about Stannis's preoccupation with Melisandre and her visions, saying, He is always with the Red Woman, and he is not in his right mind, I fear. This talk of a stone dragon? Madness, I tell you, sheer madness. Did we learn nothing from Arion Brightfire, from the Nine Mages, from the Alchemists? Did we learn nothing from Summerhall? No good has ever come from these dreams of dragons. Okay, so we've had some ominous reports about what Stannis is getting up to. It seems clear that he's developed a possibly unhealthy obsession with fire and visions and prophecy. And Alistair would also mention that Salador's son was the one who had promised to get his letter to King's Landing and Lord Tywin. Yet in the next chapter, Alistair's brother Axel would reveal to Davos, now released from the cell for an audience with Stannis, that he had made a plan with San himself, which would turn out to be having Axel confirmed as Stannis's new hand and leading an assault on Claw Isle in retribution for Lord Celtigar's defection to the Lannister side after the battle. Yeah, and Axel threatens Davos that he must support him with Stannis or face the flames. And as an aside, since Salador San's only real motivation is to get paid for his services, we think it's likely he is the one who betrayed Alistair, since submission to the Lannisters would be unlikely to benefit him, and then threw in with Axel in hopes of seeing some plunder from Claw Isle, which was reputed to be full of treasures of House Celtigar. No surprise there, and of course we'll continue to see that San is loyal only to himself, though his friendship with Davos does count for something. Anyway, Stannis is confirmed in Davos's point of view to be much changed. Gaunt and looking ten years older, his involvement with Mel's dark magic and his defeat have nodded him. He wants Davos's counsel about the proposed assault on Claw Isle, and Davos recommends against it, in spite of Axel Florence's private threats. In defense of Lord Adrian Celtigar's defection to the Lannister side after his capture at the Blackwater, which Stannis insists was a dereliction of his duty to be loyal to his liege lord, Davos invokes Stannis's choice during Robert's Rebellion. As you remained loyal to King Aerys when your brother raised his banners? And what ensues is a discussion which proves Davos's value as an honest counsellor including Davos's views of Melisandre's responsibility in the deaths of his sons, of Maester Cresson, Courtney Penrose and Renly. Stannis doesn't bother to deny Cresson and Penrose, but he does deny the others. Melisandre is his faithful servant, he insists, just as Davos is. And Davos is so faithful and so honest that Stannis raises him there and then to Lord of the Rainwood Admiral of the Narrow Sea, and Hand of the King. And then Melisandre arrives, and after a conversation where Stannis reveals he's seen a vision that sounds very much like the struggle of the Night's Watch at the Fist of the First Men far to the north, Mel asks, clearly not for the first time, for Stannis to give her Edric Storm for the flames. When he refuses, citing his kinship with the boy and Shireen's fondness for him, she brings forth a tray of leeches that she retrieved from Maester Pylos. Moments before, Davos and Stannis had discussed Edric Storm and his king's blood, 
The boy had been ill, and Stannis mentioned that Maester Pylos had been leeching him, which seemed like an out-of-place piece of information at the time. But now we see there are three leeches, and Stannis throws them into the flames one by one, naming them Joffrey Baratheon, Balon Greyjoy, and Rob Stark. It's quite a chilling moment that sets an ominous tone for the narrative going forward. It will work, and it will not, Melisandre says cryptically. And we'll leave Dragonstone for a while with that disquieting note to return to the Riverlands. The North is hard and cold and has no mercy. So around the time Tywin and Tyrion were sitting in that small council meeting and Davos was sitting in a dungeon on Dragonstone, Rob arrived back at Riverrun with his uncle Brynden Tully, the Northern and Riverlords who had accompanied him to the West and a group of strangers who were introduced as the Westerlings of the Crag. While Tywin in King's Landing, Roose Bolton at Harrenhal and Lord Walder Frey at the Twins have all had news of Rob's marriage by this time, Catelyn had been kept in the dark by her brother Edmure and the eventual introduction of Jane Westerling as Rob's bride comes as a shock to her. But first, Catelyn must face Rob's judgement in the matter of her release of Jaime Lannister and Lord Rickard Karstark's anger. Claiming she's robbed him of his vengeance, Karstark storms from the hall, while Rob offers a cleverly phrased forgiveness. What you did, I know you did for love, for Arya and Sansa, and out of grief for Bran and Rickon. Love's not always wise, I've learned. It can lead us to great folly, but we follow our hearts, wherever they take us, don't we, mother? So Kat is relieved. But then concerned to note that Grey Wind is not at Rob's side. Following the introduction of the Westerlings, the Starks and Tullys retreat for a private conversation. Rob tells a story of his marriage, and also that Grey Wind has been left in the kennels because he makes his young bride nervous and seems to dislike the smell of her uncle, Sir Rolf Spicer. And Cat is alarmed by this and asks that Sir Rolf be sent away, which Rob agrees to do to humor her. But then the greater concern of the phrase and the situation Edmure's victory over Tywin Lannister had left them in took precedence. Edmure was suitably chastened for his role in their current predicament and offered to do whatever was necessary to make it up. Ultimately, Rob resolved that he must retake the North, but in order to do that, he must have the phrase and he wondered what would make Lord Walder happy. It was Cat who suggested that perhaps the question should be who. And having made that suggestion, we want to point out that Catelyn unwittingly played into whatever plotting had been going on between Tywin, Lady Sybil Westerling, Roose Bolton and Walder Frey. For in spite of the clear trail of covert communication and Tywin's letter-writing in King's Landing that Tyrion had observed weeks earlier. The Red Wedding couldn't have been planned until there was a bridegroom on offer. 
Yeah, and how sweet this opportunity must have seemed to Walder Frey to not only gain his revenge on the Starks for their insult and on the Tullys for what he saw as a lifetime of wounded pride, but to also align himself at last with the winning side by giving the Lannisters the final victory they needed. And it's a measure of Tywin's winner-take-all policy that, once alerted to the Frey plans, he didn't see fit to warn the Westerlings or safeguard members of their house from the planned massacre in any way. Lady Sybil may have offered him information and may even have been willing to commit some act of treachery on his behalf, but in the end she essentially did very little and eventually it was Kat's conviction that Jane and her family should be left behind out of courtesy rather than any protection offered by Tywin Lannister that seems to have saved most of the Westerlings from Lord Walder's revenge and more on that later. Okay, and it's around this time that Robert Glover and Helmut Allhart suffered their defeat at Duskendale, and Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth are captured by the Bloody Mummers around Maidenpool, Sir Cleos Frey having been killed in an attack by outlaws not long before. We'll soon learn that Rickard Karstark had offered the hand of his daughter Alice to any man who brought him the Kingslayer. But in the meantime, Lord Karstark was not going to give up on his quest for vengeance for the deaths of his sons. That's right, in the dead of night, a matter of days after their return to Riverrun, Lord Karstark and seven of his men seized Tyon Frey, Sir Cleos's younger brother, and Willem Lannister, the son of Sir Kevin, both nephews to Lord Tywin, from their beds and murdered them. It was a carefully planned act, for before the killings, all the fighting strength of the Karstarks, nearly 300 men, had slipped away into the rainy night to begin their search for Jamie Lannister and more vengeance. But the eight that stayed behind to carry out the heinous act of treachery were soon captured and brought before Rob. Standing accused of murdering unarmed children who were under Rob's protection by the rules of war, Lord Karstark was recalcitrant that it was a father's right to vengeance that fueled his actions, and he laid the blame at Catelyn's door for denying him his vengeance by freeing Jamie. Yeah, but the implication here is interesting. Jamie was a valued prisoner who was also protected by Rob under the rules of prisoners of war, and it doesn't seem like Rob had any intention of allowing him to fall victim to Lord Karstark's need for vengeance, since he had pledged to keep Sir Jamie as a hostage, quote, for his father's good behaviour. So blaming Katz for robbing him of vengeance seems essentially an admission by Lord Karstark that he had intentions to commit an act of equal treachery against Rob by killing Jamie if he were still present. The Kingslayer cut them down. Only blood can pay for blood, he says of his sons and his right to vengeance. Yeah, and he adds that these two were of his ilk justifying his treason with this claim that he had a right to take these lives. Rob's disbelief 
How can you call this vengeance? This was folly and bloody murder. Your sons died honorably on a battlefield with swords in their hands, is met with the stubborn insistence that any and all Lannisters, even unarmed children, must pay the price for those deaths. So Rob orders the execution of the murderers, including Lord Rickard himself, after a private council with his mother and uncles. Here's his decision. In battle, I might have slain Tyon and Willem myself, but this was no battle. They were asleep in their beds, naked and unarmed, in a cell where I put them. Rickard Carstock killed more than a Frey and a Lannister. He killed my honour. I shall deal with him at dawn. And so the next morning, Rob delivered his final judgment and sentence. Rickard Carstark, Lord of Carhold, here in sight of gods and men, I judge you guilty of murder and high treason. In mine own name I condemn you, with mine own hand I take your life. And after accusing his liege of kinslaying, Rickard Carstark died at Rob's hand, the young king looking into the condemned man's eyes, hearing his last words and carrying out the sentence just as his father would have. But this was small comfort considering the loss of the strength of the carhold, in which we can see the fracturing of the Northern Alliance. We hear that Carstark's foot is with Roos Bolton, and while Rob is concerned about what that means to Roos, in hindsight we as readers know that there was a more sinister implication to that particular situation. True, because it will soon become obvious that Roos has systematically sacrificed those troops under his command that were most likely to remain loyal to Rob, including the force sent to Duskendale comprising nearly a third of Rob's foot. That included Harry and Carstark and his carhold men, who were in the Duskendale force and thus sacrificed by Roos. Unable to predict either Lord Rickard's actions or Rob's response, it's pretty clear that Roos may have hoped to relieve Lord Carstark of his one surviving son, thereby stoking Carstark's rage and unpredictability, and perhaps laying the blame for it at Rob's door, while leaving the succession of the Carhold in the hands of whoever might claim the hand of young Alice Carstark. In the meantime, a river run Lord Hoster finally gave up his hold on life, and the Tullys gathered for a funeral even as two representatives of House Frey arrived with the answer to Rob's offer of reconciliation. But before we get into that, let's trace the movements of Jamie and Aya through the Riverlands. Jamie was captured around Maidenpool only a matter of days before his cousins were murdered by the Carstarks at Riverrun. This is significant because Vargo Hoat, commander of the so-called Brave Companions, was aware of the price Lord Rickard had offered for the Kingslayer and would have hoped to claim the prize of Alice Carstark and possibly become Lord of the Carhold one day, perhaps having been forewarned of Harrion's possible demise by Roose Bolton. In spite of which, the brave companions would bring Jamie and Brienne to their ally Bolton at Harrenhal rather than to Lord Rickard at Riverrun. 
Perhaps Lord Rickard had planned to flee to Harrenhal if he escaped Riverrun after committing his murders, though that's sheer speculation and impossible to know the truth of. But speaking of Harrenhal, we last saw Arya Stark escaping from there to avoid being left in the clutches of Hote and his team of monsters. She fell in with the Brotherhood Without Banners in short order and proceeded to traverse the Riverlands with them, her point-of-view locales overlapping many of the same sites that Jamie would describe in his journey, only hers would be outward from Harrenhal in captivity, while his would be in the reverse. Arya's journey would take her to the Inn of the Kneeling Man, where her distant ancestor bent the knee to Aegon Targaryen, to a place called High Hearts, where she would meet a curious old woman who saw things in dreams, to Acon Hall, where a wise noble lady would see her for what she was, and to Stony Sept, where her father and grandfather once fought a great battle. Her next intersection with the Bloody Mummers would be at an unnamed village in the Riverlands, where the BWB would discover a group of them in a small sept. Launching an ambush, which would become a full-blown battle, the BWB killed or captured the lot, except for two Dothraki, whom Lord Berwick allowed to escape to, quote, carry the word back to Harrenhal, adding... It would give the leech lord and his goat a few more sleepless nights. After a trial, the captives would be hung in a typical display of brotherhood justice. And at this point, the destination of the group is Riverrun, their intent being to collect the ransom that would certainly be offered for Arya's return. Very soon, though, Word began to circulate in the Riverlands of the new agreement that had been made between Rob Stark and the Lord of the Crossing. As the year drew to a close, the winds of change were in the air, and it would not be change for the good for the people of the Riverlands. Weddings have become more perilous than battles, it would seem. So, we're calling this segment Four Weddings and a Funeral, since there are five events that we'll be focusing on here. And in a chat with fans about the upcoming A Storm of Swords in 1999, George himself promised exactly that. But after the book was complete, he recanted a little, telling fans, I fear I lied about the four weddings and the funeral. Now that I'm done, I see there are four weddings, two funerals, and a wake. Four trials as well, and three dragons, four bears, many mammoths, an unkindness of ravens, and a turtle of unusual size. More battles, sword fights, and deaths than I can count, but two births as well, just to remind us all that life goes on. Yeah, well, we won't be covering all of those events here, but how typical of George that the tale grew in the telling. So, when we last mentioned Rob and Cat. The Frey envoys had arrived at Riverrun, ostensibly to pay their respects to Lord Hoster at his funeral, but in reality to discuss a new agreement with Lord Walder. 
Rob was offering his uncle Edmure in his place, and as the new Lord Paramount of the Riverlands, the offer being made was almost identical to the one Cat had originally forged with the old man, remembering that at the time Rob was merely the heir to the living Lord Eddard Stark. Yeah, but in the meantime, of course, Lord Walder had gotten used to the idea of having a king in the family tree and was not going to be mollified with a mere Lord Paramount. The Red Wedding planning was well underway by this time, and the Frey envoys, Lame Lothar and Walder Rivers, insisted that the wedding take place at once. Of note, this meeting seems to coincide with Jamie's arrival at Harrenhal and eventual meeting with Roose Bolton, wherein Roos telegraphed his intent to ally with the Lannisters quite plainly. Well, whatever communication there had been between Roos and Tywin previously was now in peril of being undone due to Vargo Hote's maiming of Jamie. Roos would take pains to make sure Jamie saw the truth of his intentions before sending him on to King's Landing with Steelshanks Walton and leaving the poisoned prize of Harrenhal to the Bloody Mummers, while he himself took the road for the twins and Edmure Tully's wedding. And Catelyn, Edmure, Rob and the Northern Host would also be on that same road, making their way across the Riverlands to the Frey Castle, while the Blackfish was left in charge of Riverrun and what Rob would call his Southern Marches. As we mentioned, the Westerlings would largely be left behind as well, with the exception of Sir Reynald, Jane's elder brother. But the day before the party made ready to depart, news of Sansa arrived from King's Landing. That's right. Rob would be left to break the news to Cat that, even as they dealt with the deaths of Tyon Frey and Willem Lannister, Sansa had been married to Tyrion, the very Lannister who had promised to return both Sansa and Arya to their family in exchange for his brother, on the strength of which promise Catelyn had risked everything to free Jaime and send him covertly to King's Landing. And while we've already pinpointed the moment when the Lannisters discovered the Tyrells' secret plot to marry Sansa to their Willis and developed the counterplan to marry her to Tyrion instead, poor Sansa remained utterly unaware of the plots around her even up to the moment she was being dressed for her wedding. Of course, as we've also pointed out, marrying Sansa to Tyrion did nothing to stop the real Tyrell plot to rid themselves of the dangerous Joffrey. Yeah, but it did provide Littlefinger with an excellent opportunity to frame Tyrion for Joffrey's murder. Simultaneously, he hoped, throwing suspicion well away from any other party, ridding Sansa of her troublesome status of Lannister wife and ridding himself of a potentially dangerous adversary. Okay, and speaking of Littlefinger's earlier revelation to Tywin about the Tyrell plot... We want to point out a neat little allusion we noticed in the description of the Sansa Tyrion wedding. It says, And so it was that her lord husband cloaked her in the colors of House Lannister whilst standing on the back of a fool. And we couldn't help but notice the fact that while Tyrion literally standing on Dontos's back enabled him to carry out the marriage, the entire wedding was also figuratively happening because of the drunken fool's confession to Lord Baelish. So, a clever bit of wordplay there, we think, 
And now back to Rob giving Catelyn the news. It was, of course, devastating to her and to Rob as well, really, coming so soon after the death of Lord Hoster and the news of Tallheart and Glover's defeat at Duskendale. But the bad news wouldn't end there, as the phrase would bring the false news that Winterfell had been burned by Theon Greyjoy, with some survivors having been rescued by Ramsay and brought to the Dreadfort. So it was with all this bearing down on him that Rob would lead his army north over a month of seemingly endless rain, intending to make amends to Lord Walter with the wedding of his uncle to Ross and Frey, and then to take the Frey's crossing north to deal with the Ironborn and retake his own lands once and for all. And it was also around this time that, during a storm, King Balon Greyjoy would plunge to his death from a rope walk on Pike, and his brother Euron, long absent from the Iron Islands, would conveniently sail into Lordsport the next day and claim the sea stone chair for himself. But with many potential claimants, and Balon's brother Aeron as intent on seeing the old ways return as Balon had been, a king's moot would be called as of old to settle the question of succession. With the Ironborn captains, including members of the Greyjoy family, scattered around the north, the moot itself would have to wait while the lords and captains assembled. In the meantime, Euron closed the harbour at Lordsport to prevent news of Balon's death from spreading. But the news would reach Rob as he and his army struggled through Hagsmire on their way to the twins, courtesy of the captain of the Miraham, that same ship that had delivered Theon to Pike several months earlier. Now more convinced than ever that the time was ripe to retake the north, Rob came up with a covert plan that would end up saving the lives of some of his bannermen while setting the stage for possible plotting of vengeance later on. Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover would leave his company that very day with Jason Malister to head into the Neck, bearing messages for Highland Reed. Rob would march up the causeway to Moat Caelan as the year drew to a close, with Great John Umber leading the vanguard against the Ironmen at the stronghold, while Ruse brought up the rear. Rob's battle, a third of the Northern Army, would melt into the Neck to be led by Highland by secret ways known only to the Cranagmen to the north side of the Moat. And there they would fall upon the Ironborn and retake the causeway and essentially the north, since it was expected most of the Ironborn would have departed back to the islands in the wake of Balon's death. It was a daring plan and outside the box, typical of Rob, one which should have played out as he expected, but for the treachery that lay in wait for him at the Twins. Yeah, George really lets us see just how close Rob was to pulling off another triumph here. But in the meantime, the remnants of his foot from Duskendale were being harried across the southern riverlands by Sir Gregor Clegane, while Randall Tarley was making inroads into the riverlands, seizing control of Maidenpool, and locking Lord Mooton in a tower. And speaking of the mountain that rides, with Roose Bolton on the move, with his force from Harrenhal to the Twins... Sir Gregor would march up the King's Road with a detachment of heavy horse, catching up with the Northerners at the Trident. While Roos ferried his troops across the swollen river, he left 
Wireless Manderley and his White Harbour Knights as the rear guard on the southern bank. Gregor came upon this group of about 2,000 troops, mainly the Manderley Knights, but with a contingent of Lock, Norrie and Burley men as well, and cut down or drove most of them into the river. The survivors would be taken prisoner and brought by Gregor to Harrenhal, which he would have little trouble retaking from Vargo Hote's bloody mummers. And Roos would continue on to the twins, leaving a force of some 600 men, quote, spearmen from the rills, the mountains, and the white knife, a hundred hornwood longbows, some free riders and hedge knights, and a strong force of stout and Kerwin men to stiffen them. Under the command of Ronald Stout and Sir Kyle Condon, who had been the late Lord Kerwin's right-hand man. So Roos would arrive at the twins with around 3,500 men. 500 horse and 3,000 foot, mostly Dreadfort men, along with some from the Carhold. With the Frey's original force now regrouped at their home base, the combined Bolton Frey troops would outnumber Rob's army by more than two to one. And of course, we want to point out that Roos once again strategically sacrificed those troops likely to be most loyal to Rob. That's Mandalees, Kerwins and Mountain Clansmen, while bringing his own men and the Carhold troops safely to the Twins. That's right, thereby ensuring that it would be a relatively easy thing to overwhelm those men who arrived with Rob, who in addition to his own 3,500 traveled with very few Riverlanders, chiefly a handful of young men who were attending Edmure's wedding. And speaking of the wedding, we've covered the Red Wedding pretty thoroughly in our Cat and Rob episodes, so we're going to maintain our focus here mainly on its planning and its impact on the course of the war. But first, we're going to catch up with Jamie and Arya, both still traveling in the Riverlands as the Red Wedding draws near. Yeah, we had mentioned Aya was with the BWB, and their destination was Riverrun, where they intended to collect a ransom for her safe return to rob there. But word had reached the group at High Heart that the Starks might be on the move to the Twins, and while the Brotherhood debated what to do about Aya, she was seized by Sandor Clegane, who had no hesitation about heading north for the twins with his new, very valuable captive. That's right, Sandor intended to demand a ransom for Arya, no differently than what the Brotherhood Without Banners were planning. The main difference, interestingly enough, is that he then planned to offer his sword to Rob, if he'd have him. Sandor tells Arya, You think your outlaw friends are the only ones can smell a ransom? Dondarrion took my gold, so I took you. You're worth twice what they stole from me, I'd say. Maybe even more if I sold you back to the Lannisters, like you fear. But I won't. Even a dog gets tired of being kicked. If this young wolf has the wits the gods gave a toad, he'll make me a lordling and beg me to enter his service. He needs me, though he may not know it yet. Maybe I'll even kill Gregor for him. He'd like that. Well, I cast some doubt on whether Rob would accept that service. But we think it's pretty obvious through their chapters together that Sandor had forsworn the Lannisters, and in spite of his 
continuing bravado, his loyalties, if any, now lie with the two young girls on whose lives he has had such an impact. There remains his desire to kill his brother, which will be commented upon later by the elder brother of the Quiet Isle. But we think we really see the hinted at change in his arc come into the fore in the weeks he spends with Aya in the Riverlands. Okay, in the meantime, as we mentioned, Jamie Lannister had been put on the road south to King's Landing with Roos's man Steelshanks Walton and 200 men. Roos commented on the weather, as the seemingly never-ending rain had brought the Trident into full flood, a circumstance noted in all the Riverlands' point of views at this time, and which we think is a marvelous bit of mood-building by George. Roos's words to Jamie, "'You will give my warm regards to your father,' elicited the reply, "'So long as you give mine to Rob Stark.' This offhand remark will almost certainly come back to haunt Jamie one day. Yes, it will. And we think it's noteworthy that Jamie's safe return to Lord Tywin was important enough that he had the ability, on the day after their departure, to turn the group around and bring it back to Harrenhal to retrieve Brienne of Tarth from the Bloody Mummers. The fall of Harrenhal back into Lannister hands is prefigured in this scene, and sure enough, we'll later learn that Sir Gregor would re-garrison the castle with his own men after the battle at the fords. He'd lose no time repaying Vargo for his betrayal of the Lannister cause and installing the Northmen he'd taken prisoner, including Sir Wyllis Manderley, whom Jamie will cross paths with on his next visit to Harrenhal. Roslyn caught a fine fat trout. Her brothers gave her a pair of wolf pelts for her wedding. Okay, and now let's get back to Cat and Rob as they arrive at the twins after several soggy weeks on the march. Cat has been uneasy for some time, her discomfort mirrored by the weather, and as they prepare to be greeted by Sir Ryman and his three sons, she tells Rob, If we are offered refreshment when we arrive, on no account refuse. Take what is offered, and eat and drink where all can see. If nothing is offered, ask for bread and cheese and a cup of wine. Once you have eaten of his bread and salt, you have the guest right, and the laws of hospitality protect you under his roof. So Cat has mother's sixth sense here, and Rob promises to humour her, neither of them suspecting the extent of the insult that had been taken, and the depth to which Walder Frey would sink to enact his revenge. As Merritt Frey would put it, he shamed us, the whole realm was laughing, we had to cleanse the stain on our honour. Of course, the violation of guest right, as has long been discussed, is a much more serious stain on the honour of House Frey, but Lord Walder, at nearly 92, maybe wouldn't be expected to live long enough to see anything beyond the immediate satisfaction of his own revenge upon the Starks. But it turns out that Merritt Frey is an excellent witness to the planning, as he recalls in his own point of view... Lord Walder had ordered the slaughter of the Starks at Roslyn's wedding, but it had been Lame Lothar who had plotted it out with Roose Bolton, 
all the way down to which songs would be played. And later he would insist. The Red Wedding was my father's work and Ryman's and Lord Bolton's. Lothar rigged the tents to collapse and put the crossbowmen in the gallery with the musicians. Bastard Walder led the attack on the camps. They're the ones you want, not me. I only drank some wine. But of course, even in drinking some wine, he would be playing his role as his half-brother, Lame Lothar, had assigned it to him. You shall have one task and one task only merit, but I believe you are well suited to it. I want you to see to it that Great John Umber is so bloody drunk that he can hardly stand, let alone fight. Okay, so a few points of interest here. It's been pretty well established that Tywin was writing letters and was in direct contact with Walder Frey prior to the wedding. That he was also in contact with Roos Bolton is strongly hinted at, not the least by the fact Roos told Jamie and Brienne at Harrenhal Arya Stark was lost for a time, it was true, but now she has been found. I mean to see her return safely to the north. This seems to be a strong indicator that Roos is in touch with someone in the capital and is already making plans for quote-unquote Arya to be wed to his son Ramsay to cement his own claim to Winterfell. But Tywin was also in communication with Lady Sybil Westerling, from whom he learned of Rob's marriage and likely some information about Rob's movements. And Lady Sybil's reward was to be a pardon for her family and a lordship for her brother, Sir Rolf Spicer. In return for promising Lord Tywin that there would be no offspring from her daughter's union with Rob Stark, she was also offered marriage alliances for her two daughters and her son, Sir Reynald. But the difficulty would turn out to be that Sir Reynold went to the Red Wedding as Rob's standard bearer and did not return. And here's what we wanted to point out. As they're greeted by Sir Ryman and his sons, who, quote, made no sign of obeisance, an omission which troubled Cat, if not Rob, Blackwalder would say, I do not see the woman. My grandfather will be displeased. I've told him much of the lady and he wished to behold her with his own eyes. So it seems to us that not only were the Westerlings unaware of the plans for the wedding, but that the Freys were unaware of any understanding with the Lannisters that the Westerlings may have had, and in fact specifically had designs upon including Jane in their revenge. Blackwalder's disappointment at her absence seems to make this clear, and once again, we'll point out that it was Catelyn's sensitivity and sense of decorum that ultimately saved the girl and the rest of her family. For had they been in attendance, in hindsight, Blackwalder's reaction seems to leave little doubt as to what their fate would have been. So Tywin Lannister isn't much concerned for coordination in the plans to undo the Starks, nor the collateral damage to his so-called allies. Jamie's complete lack of concern in A Feast for Crows over dead Freys and Westerlings and the rewards any of them might have been promised illustrates this pretty well. This is a typical scorched earth Lannister strategy. Any cost that achieves their victory appears to be worth it. And so Walder Frey's devious revenge played out with the collusion of Roose Bolton, not-so-loyal vassal of the Starks, 
and the approval of Tywin Lannister in King's Landing. The death of Robb Stark and the slaughter of the majority of his remaining cohesive army, keeping in mind there are wolves scattered around the Riverlands and beyond even many months later, would have an immediate and obvious impact on the struggle the maesters were calling the War of the Five Kings. Renly and Balon, who had never been considered real threats, were dead, and Stannis Baratheon appeared to be at bay, skulking on Dragonstone with a few hundred followers, waiting only on the new royal fleet to finish him. But Rob had been the dark horse, the candidate who had unexpectedly appeared to be holding all the cards at one point, who defeated Tywin Lannister in the field and might have prevailed had not fate and treachery arrayed themselves against him. We think it's safe to say that the failures of leadership in his reign and military campaign in no way accounted for the complete abandonment of honour and rules of engagement by the principal actors in the Red Wedding. At this point, victory for the Lannisters seemed not only certain, but complete. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. But who would be mad enough to contest Joffrey's rule now after what had befallen Stannis Baratheon and Robb Stark? There was still fighting in the Riverlands, but everywhere, the coils were tightening. Sir Gregor Clegane had crossed the trident and seized the Ruby Ford, then captured Harrenhal almost effortlessly. Seaguard had yielded to Black Walder Frey. Lord Randall Tarley held Maidenpool, Duskendale, and the King's Road. In the west, Sir Davin Lannister had linked up with Sir Forley Prester at the Golden Tooth for a march on Riverrun. Sir Ryman Frey was leading 2,000 spears down from the Twins to join them and Paxter Redwine claimed his fleet would soon set sail from the arbor to begin the long voyage around Dorne and through the Stepstones. Stannis's Lysini pirates would be outnumbered ten to one. The struggle that the maesters were calling the War of the Five Kings was all but at an end. When news of the Red Wedding arrived in King's Landing several days later, Cersei and Joffrey seemed almost jubilant, while Tywin and Kevin were grimly satisfied. Tyrion, who had grown tentatively attached to his new wife and had treated her gently and with as much kindness as he could in the circumstances, was more philosophical. Here was confirmation that his father had been up to something with those letters, and he commented dryly, Kings are falling like leaves this autumn. It would seem our little war is winning itself. 
When Tywin goes on to outline his plans to subdue the final enemies in the field through a combination of hostages, sieges, and generous terms, Joffrey rouses from his celebratory mood to make a demand of his grandfather. They should all be put to the sword, the Malisters and Blackwoods and Brackens, all of them. They're traitors. I want them killed, grandfather. I won't have any generous terms. And I want Rob Stark's head, too. Write to Lord Frey and tell him, the king commands, I'm going to have it served to Sansa at my wedding feast. This provoked a protective flair from Tyrion and an exchange which would come back to haunt the imp one day. No. Tyrion's voice was hoarse. Sansa is no longer yours to torment. Understand that, monster. Joffrey sneered. You're the monster, uncle. Am I? Tyrion cocked his head. Perhaps you should speak more softly to me then. Monsters are dangerous beasts, and just now kings seem to be dying like flies. Well, Cersei's and Joffrey's anger were predictable, but Joff's threat of retribution and childish declaration, I am the king, led, to Tyrion's amusement, to one of the more interesting of several private Lannister family moments in A Storm of Swords, as well as some insight into Lord Tywin's martial philosophy. Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. And any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king at all. Ares never understood that, but you will. When I've won your war for you, we will restore the king's peace and the king's justice. The only head that need concern you is Marjorie Tyrell's maidenhead. Joffrey had that sullen, sulky look he got. Cersei had him firmly by the shoulder, but perhaps she should have had him by the throat. The boy surprised them all. Instead of scuttling safely back under his rock, Joff drew himself up defiantly and said, You talk about Ares, grandfather, but you are scared of him. Everyone knows it's true. My father won all the battles. He killed Prince Rhaegar and took the crown while you were hiding under Casterly Rock. A strong king acts boldly. He doesn't just talk. So Tywin reacts by sending Joffrey to bed with some dream wine from Bycelle over the boy's loud protests. He also dismisses Cersei after criticising her parenting skills and is visibly upset at Tyrion's suggestion that Joffrey bears more similarity to Ares than Robert Baratheon. Joffrey needs a sharp lesson, Lord Tywin decides. But what that might have been is something we'll have to wonder about since Tyrion distracts him to ask some pointed questions about the fray plotting. Wars are won with quills and ravens. Wasn't that what you said? I must congratulate you. How long have you and Walder Frey been plotting this? Was Cersei told? Besides being obviously uncomfortable with the suggestion that he had done something as distasteful as plot with Walder Frey, Tywin was fairly blunt about the process. No one was told anything save those who had a part to play, and they were only told as much as they needed to know. My object was to rid us of a dangerous enemy as cheaply as I could. 
So admittedly, Rob Stark had become quite dangerous in Tywin's eyes, and he had no problem keeping his co-conspirators in the dark when it suited him. The Red Wedding was allowed to develop like a hideous cancer, consuming lives regardless of their loyalties, so that Rob Stark could be dealt with swiftly and cheaply. As we've pointed out elsewhere, Tywin's suggestion that his objective was to kill, quote, a dozen men at dinner to avoid the loss of thousands in a battle is utterly disingenuous considering that hundreds if not thousands of Stark supporters were actually slaughtered in the tents as they feasted as guests in what they thought was an ally's home in a betrayal of an ancient and sacred diplomatic custom. And in Tywin's eyes, the price was cheap. River Run would go to Sir Emmon Frey, Walter's second son and Tywin's brother-in-law, and Lancel and Davin Lannister would marry Frey's, while Joy Hill would marry one of Lord Walter's bastard sons. Roose Bolton would be Warden of the North and marry his son to Arya Stark. And here's the little trick. Tywin planned to let Roose clear the North of Ironborn and, quote, bring Stark's other bannermen to heel. But the North and Winterfell would ultimately go to Tyrion and Sansa's son, thus securing the region for the Lannisters once and for all. And there's a strong suggestion here that Tyrion was very much aware that Arya was a fake, while Roos was being kept in the dark, or at least allowed to believe he'd be left alone to pull off the ruse and claim Winterfell in his son's name. Tywin refers to the deception of Renly's ghost at Blackwater and indicates that Littlefinger was also involved with the resurrection of Arya Stark. And with the reference to his young wife and the need to sire a son, Tyrion's anger flared once again. And when do you imagine Sansa will be at her most fertile? Before or after I tell her how we murdered her mother and her brother. And when we next see Tyrion, it's the morning of Joffrey's wedding. And like the Red Wedding, we've also covered this event in depth elsewhere, specifically in our Joffrey episode from last year, and here we'll focus on its planning and impact upon the war. As with the deceptions of Renly's ghost and fake Arya, will ultimately learn that Littlefinger is the prime mover behind the plot to remove Joffrey and replace him with the much more pliable Tommen, along with the Tyrells, who were motivated by the danger that the monstrous young king posed to Marjorie. That's right, and as we said earlier, the fact that the plot was well advanced by the time the Tyrells arrived in King's Landing for the Battle of Blackwater is evidenced by the fact that we saw Dontos gifting Sansa with a certain hairnet on the day Tywin was officially named Joffrey's Hand. Marjorie had yet to arrive, and her family was already plotting to remove the boy who had only just publicly announced he would marry her. Well, of course, we saw that Baelish had laid the groundwork for all of this at Highgarden, spreading certain tales about Joffrey while negotiating the Lannister-Tyrell alliance. Baelish's involvement would turn out to be exceedingly clever. As usual, his actions were nearly untraceable, and he proves once again his mastery of the power of suggestion. Lord Littlefinger suggested it certainly explains many of the events in King's Landing, both pre- and post-Blackwater, as we've discussed before. 
His suggestion to Joffrey that Tyrion would be offended by the jousting dwarfs that were brought in to provide entertainment at the wedding is yet another case in point, as Tyrion's reaction to that, combined with other circumstantial incidents, would go a long way towards giving an impression of guilt following Joffrey's death. And as it turned out, Littlefinger's revelation of the subplot to marry Sansa to Willis had the effect of reinforcing an appearance of loyalty to the Lannister cause, while in actuality his intentions all along were apparently to remove her clandestinely in the chaos following the king's death. Her flight would also serve to reinforce the appearance of Tyrion's guilt, so all in all a quite masterful stroke on Baelish's part, as we see throughout A Storm of Swords that Tyrion is the one person in the capital with the access to records and the wit to uncover some of Littlefinger's more dubious activities and therefore poses a significant threat to the former Master of Coin. Yeah, and that threat may have seemed greater than it was given that many months previously, not long after he arrived in King's Landing as acting hand, Tyrion had made a promise of sorts to Baelish, little more than a bluff, really, to give Lysa Arryn, quote, John Arryn's true killer. In hindsight, with the knowledge that John Arryn was murdered by Lysa at Peter's suggestion, it's evident from Littlefinger's reaction that he interpreted that statement as a threat. But in reality, it was a part of Tyrion's plot to reveal untrustworthy counselors, which outed Pycelle, who incidentally is who Tyrion was referring to when he made that statement. And so it's wheels within wheels as usual with Littlefinger. And if your head hurts trying to comprehend the depths of it all, don't worry, so do ours. Now getting back to the actual wedding, the planning for the great event had gone on for weeks. It would be, as Tyrion thought... An evening of song and splendour designed not only to unite Highgarden and Casterly Rock, but to trumpet their power and wealth as a lesson to any who might still think to oppose Joffrey's rule. And who would even try at this point? The outcome seemed almost a foregone conclusion, with three of the rival claimants dead and only Stannis remaining holed up on Dragonstone. The spectacle of the combined power and wealth of the Tyrells and Lannisters would be an awesome thing indeed, and as a literary device, the descriptions of Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding stand in stark contrast to those of Edmure Tully's wedding to Ross and Frey not long before. Yeah, a bare handful of chapters in A Storm of Swords separates those descriptions. All the descriptions of the Red Wedding from the journey there in Cat's POV where the weather and her persistent feelings of despair set the tone for the event, to the descriptions of the terrible food, poor entertainment, and the cacophony and physical discomfort of the overcrowded hall there at the Twins, really build up a sense of dread within the reader, so that the impact of the murders is not so much a surprise or shock as it is the climax of an adeptly constructed and well-foreshadowed storyline. But as much as the Red Wedding was a gut punch, the Purple Wedding, on the other hand, comes as a visceral shock. In the wake of all the Lannister victories, we fully expect Joffrey's wedding to be a visual display of power and dominance. 
All the descriptions are of opulence and abundance. The Lannisters are in the ascendancy, and their new allies, the Tyrells, are part of their present and future dominance of the politics of the realm. So, when Joffrey begins to choke and falls to the ground dying, we feel very much as Tyrion does. A sense of the surreal overcomes us, and a detached pity for the lives so affected more than likely momentarily colors our feelings of vindication or our need for vengeance in the wake of the heart-wrenching events of the Red Wedding. Ultimately, Sansa's reaction probably sums it up best. As she flees to the godswood to a pre-appointed meeting with Dontos, her flight having been planned in advance of the feast and without her knowledge of what would happen there, she thinks, Joffrey was dead. He was dead. He was dead, dead, dead. Why was she crying when she wanted to dance? Were they tears of joy? Rob had died at a wedding feast as well. It was Rob she wept for, him and Marjorie. So George has mastered the art of making us feel pity for characters who might not seem to deserve it. As he dies, Joffrey is described, in Tyrion's point of view, as a frightened boy, and we see Cersei's anguish for her son. Against this, we weigh our desire to see the Lannisters pay for the events of the Red Wedding, and if we both laughed and cried at that scene, we can be forgiven. All are punished is what Prince Aeschylus declared at the end of the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, with four young kinspeople lying dead before him, and we think George will have that sentiment in mind as he demonstrates the impact of vengeance on human life. Yeah, and in our Joffrey episode, we mentioned an interview where George discussed Joffrey's death. As a recap, here are a few of the things he said. Joffrey's death was in some ways a counterweight for readers to the deaths of Rob and Catelyn. It shows, yes, nobody is safe. Sometimes the good guys win, sometimes the bad guys win. Nobody is safe and that we are playing for keeps. But I also tried to provide a certain moment of pathos within the death. I didn't want it to be entirely, hey ho, the witch is dead. I wanted the impact of the death to still strike home onto perhaps more complex feelings on the part of the audience, not necessarily just cheering. Okay, so in the wake of Joffrey's death, Sansa is whisked away by Peter Baelish, leaving a very guilty-looking Tyrion behind, who is arrested by his sister on the charge of regicide. Cersei has not forgotten Tyrion's declaration following the whipping of Elaea. I will hurt you for this. I don't know how yet, but give me time. A day will come when you think yourself safe and happy, and suddenly your joy will turn to ashes in your mouth, and you'll know the debt is paid. Nor his words to Joffrey, just days earlier, following the news of the Red Wedding. Perhaps you should speak more softly to me then. Monsters are dangerous beasts. And just now, kings seem to be dying like flies. Yeah, damning words there. And since we plan to cover Tyrion's trial in depth in future episodes, here we'll keep to outcomes. Tyrion is tried for the poisoning and a raft of circumstantial evidence is used against him. His man Bronn is wooed away from his side with a marriage to Lollis Stokeworth 
which brings with it the tantalising prospect of social climbing beyond his previous imagining. In spite of the evidence, it seems that Tyrion would be offered the same deal Ned Stark was offered, plead guilty and take the black. But when Shay appeared on the fourth day of the trial and testified that she had knowledge of his guilt, everything changed. Yeah, Shay would stand before the court and tell a mixture of truth and lies clearly designed to humiliate as well as incriminate Tyrion. She implicated Sansa as well with the tale, which was all too believable following three days of damning circumstantial evidence. They plotted it together. The imp and Lady Sansa plotted it after the young wolf died. Sansa wanted revenge for her brother, and Tyrion meant to have the throne. He was going to kill his sister next, and then his own lord father, so he could be hand for Prince Tommen. But after a year or so, before Tommen got too old, he would have killed him too, so as to take the crown for his own head. And that's when Tyrion demanded a trial by combat. Cersei's triumph must have seemed complete when she named Gregor Clegane as the crown's champion. But then a factor that we've largely glossed over so far roared to the fore as Oberyn Martell declared he would stand for Tyrion. Having arrived in King's Landing some weeks earlier to take up the council seat Tyrion had offered his brother Prince Doran, the notably more hot-tempered Oberyn had been repeatedly demanding to know, quote, when the justice would be served. Yeah, Oberyn had come to King's Landing apparently for the sole purpose of getting justice for his sister Elia. He wanted her killer publicly named and punished, and knowing what we do about Oberyn, we can be sure that punishment meant a painful death. But Tywin had earlier cautioned Tyrion that the Lannisters were to claim that Amory Lorch, now dead by Vargo Hote's hands at Harrenhal, was the killer. Sir Gregor, Tywin had insisted, has served us well. No other knight in the realm inspires such terror in our enemies. I mean to keep him well away for so long as the Dornishmen are in King's Landing. So Tywin's anger at discovering that Cersei had summoned the mountain back to the capital without his knowledge was made explicit. It says... Lord Tywin's face was so dark that for half a heartbeat, Tyrion wondered if he'd drunk some poisoned wine as well. He slammed his fist down on the table, too angry to speak. So typically, Cersei demonstrated her complete lack of understanding of politics here, while Gregor may have seemed a fast track to getting her the vengeance she craved, Little did she comprehend the diplomatic disaster that the mountain and the viper in one city could lead to. And clearly in no way did she foresee that they could end up in an arena together. And end they did. The duel between Sir Gregor and Prince Oberyn is legendary both in story and in the fandom. Again, we've discussed this in the past, and we'll be going in depth again about the details of the engagement itself in a future episode, so we're going to focus on implications. The ultimate death of Oberyn Martell would set events in motion in Dorne that have yet to play out in story, but suffice it to say, we think this is where Cersei really started to take her family's fortunes off the rails. 
Yeah, considering Tywin's rage, we think Cersei would have been in pretty hot water with her father, who had already expressed impatience with her decision-making on several occasions, and had made clear his intentions of marrying her off and sending her away from the capital. Tywin's eventual death not only saved her from whatever fate he had in mind for her, but further enabled her to accelerate the sudden downward spiral of House Lannister, just when it seemed they had reached the culmination of their power. Okay, and in the meantime, Peter Baelish had arrived at his holdings on the fingers in the Vale of Arryn with Sansa in tow. Soon to be disguised as his natural daughter, Elaine Stone, they waited only on the arrival of her aunt Lysa. Within days of Joffrey's death, Littlefinger would marry Lysa Arryn with the crown's blessing and make his way with her back to the Eyrie, now styling himself Lord Protector of the Vale. And if you've been keeping count, you'll know that's the fourth wedding we see in A Storm of Swords. And besides Hoster Tully's funeral, there were more deaths than we can count on two hands, including three of the remaining four kings. Which again, if you're keeping count, should tell you that there was now only one king left standing. And so, let's turn our attention to Dragonstone and Stannis Baratheon. We had one king, then five. Now all I see are crows squabbling over the corpse of Westeros. We last saw Stannis burning a trio of leeches, fat with the blood of young Edric Storm. Clearly an attempt at blood magic of a sort, the leeches were named Balon Greyjoy, Joffrey Baratheon, and Rob Stark. Melisandre had cautioned that the attempt would work, but maybe not in the way Stannis wanted it to. When news of the Red Wedding arrived to Dragonstone, the celebratory attitude of Queen Selyse and Sir Axel Florent proves that they saw the ritual as a success of sorts, though perhaps more as a proof of the power of R'hllor and leeway to take the next step. Yeah, while Melisandre cautions Stannis again, that this was not an end, that, quote, more false kings will soon rise up to take the crowns of those who've died. Selyse and Axel urged him to sacrifice his nephew Edric to the flames. In fact, the queen and her uncle literally begged Stannis on their knees to give the child to Melisandre. In an effort to discredit the leech plot, Davos pointed out, Rob Stark was murdered by Lord Walder of the Crossing, and we have heard that Balon Greyjoy fell from a bridge. Who did your leeches kill? Even an onion smuggler knows two onions from three. You are a king short, my lady. And it seems like Stannis sees the point, and he again acknowledges the boy's blood relationship to him and his friendship with Shireen. But he insists... My duty is to the realm. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says, the night that never ends. She talks of prophecies, a hero reborn in the sea, living dragons hatched from dead stone. 
She speaks of signs and swears they point to me. I never asked for this, no more than I asked to be king, yet dare I disregard her? I know the cost. Last night, gazing into that hearth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows, burning, burning Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means? Or you? If Joffrey should die, what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? So Stannis acknowledges that he has foreseen his own doom in the flames, but against his duty to the kingdom, neither that nor the life of one boy are valid checks. And while in the short term this passage does not bode well for the fate of Edric Storm, the entire scene is also full of gloomy foreshadowing for the future of Stannis and the choices he and his queen seem poised to make. Yeah, it is, though Stannis's future is a topic we'll have to address in another episode. However, the king's clearly communicated willingness to sacrifice his bastard nephew, if the signs support it, leaves Davos with a deep unease. On his way to a reading lesson with Maester Pylos, Davos speaks to Salador's son, and we learn that he's been conducting some secret conversations with men he mentally terms kingsmen, solid, loyal vassals of Stannis who have reasons to stick with the Faith of the Seven, as opposed to the Valor fanatics whom Queen Selyse surrounds herself with. Those men will prove instrumental in the plan Davos puts into action the day the news arrives from King's Landing of Joffrey's death. With the cooperation of those king's men and Maester Pylos, Davos smuggles Edric Storm from Dragonstone, sending him to refuge in the free cities aboard one of Salador's son's ships in the company of his cousin, Sir Andrew Estamont, and several other loyal Baratheon knights and sworn swords. Sir Roland Storm, the bastard of Nightsong, is also part of the plot, though he remains behind with Davos and will ultimately be named Castellan of Dragonstone. And with Edric Storm out of harm's way, Davos brings the news of Joffrey's death to Stannis. Although the leeches seem to have done their work, Melisandre points out that the Lannisters will crown Joffrey's brother and rule in his name. She must have the boy. Stannis says... You swear there is no other way? Swear it on your life, or I promise you shall die by inches if you lie. Melisandre replies with a promise of her own. Give me this boy, and I will give you your kingdom. So just when Stannis seems poised to give in to the Red Woman's demands, Davos is left to confess what he's done and face Stannis's anger. But the king seems merely tired, and perhaps a tiny bit relieved. Melisandre is angry, but Davos remains steadfast. A king must defend his people, he says, or he is no king at all. And he brings out a letter from the Night's Watch, convincing Stannis of his duty to protect the kingdom from a threat from without, proves to be easier than expected when it intersected with Melisandre's visions and agenda. The decision to head north is an interesting pivot by Stannis. There he is, the sole survivor of the five kings, but truly no closer to winning the throne than he was weeks before. His followers now measure only in the hundreds, with a garrison of 300 at Storm's End and an estimated 1,300 with him at Dragonstone. In his own words, 
I have no fleet but Salador Sands, no coin to hire sell swords, no prospect of plunder or glory to lure free riders to my cause. One could make a case that Stannis is the last man standing out of sheer bullheadedness. But while Davos seeks to distract him from moral ruin, and Melisandre grasps the opportunity to advance her own vision of the future, Stannis is undoubtedly seeking to remain relevant to the future of Westeros. He perceives the threat to the realm, and sees a path to the throne by being the true protector of the realm, while the boy king and his handlers are too consumed by their internal strife, or by their arrogance at their apparent victory, to even pay attention to the pleas for help from the Night's Watch. And the next time we see Stannis, it will be many long leagues from Dragonstone. He'll still sacrifice a family member to the flames before he goes, but it will be his wife's kin, a man who stood accused of treason, for which the penalty was death. Lord Alistair Florent, his former hand, would go to the flames to gain favorable winds for the journey to Eastwatch. And our point of view of Stannis will change from Davos to Jon Snow for the better part of two books. Lord Seaworth is a man of humble birth, but he reminded me of my duty, when all I could think of was my rights. I had the cart before the horse, Davos said. I was trying to win the throne to save the kingdom, when I should have been trying to save the kingdom to win the throne. In the context of the War of the Five Kings, Stannis' arrival at Castle Black as Mance Raider launched his attack with a vast army came as a result of a letter we assume was sent south by Maester Aemon as Jor Mormont led the Great Ranging beyond the Wall. Addressed to the Five Kings, it went on to say, The king beyond the Wall comes south. He leads a vast host of wildlings. Lord Mormont sent a raven from the haunted forest. He is under attack. Other birds have come since with no words. We fear Mormont slain with all his strength. So this letter harks back to A Clash of Kings, where we saw Jor Mormont having this exchange with Corin Halfhand at the Fist of the First Men about the news that Mance Raider was leading a massive host south with the intent of breaching the wall. True or false, the wall must be warned, and the king. Which king? All of them the true and the false alike. If they would claim the realm, let them defend it. Clearly, the raven referenced in Eamon's letter came following this exchange and likely as a result of it. What's interesting is that the Eamon letter references the attack at the fist, which Stannis appears to have had a vision of. When he named Davos his hand, he said he was the man he wanted beside him in the next battle. Davos was doubtful about their ability to withstand another battle, having lost so much of their strength at Blackwater, but Melisandre told him, It is the great battle his grace is speaking of. These little wars are no more than a scuffle of children before what is to come. The one whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power, Davos Seaworth, a power fell and evil and strong beyond measure. Soon comes the cold and the night that never ends. Yeah, Stannis went on to explain to Davos how he had had a vision of the future. 
After the battle, when I was lost to despair, the Lady Melisandre bid me gaze into the hearth fire. The chimney was drawing strongly and bits of ash were rising from the fire. I stared at them, feeling half a fool, but she bid me to look deeper and... The ashes were white, rising in the updraft. Yet, all at once it seemed as if they were falling. Snow, I thought. Then the sparks in the air seemed to circle, to become a ring of torches, and I was looking through the fire down on some high hill in a forest. The cinders had become men in black behind the torches, and there were shapes moving through the snow. For all the heat of the fire, I felt a cold, so terrible I shivered, and when I did, the sight was gone, the fire but a fire once again. But what I saw was real. I'd stake my kingdom on it. And very possibly what Stannis saw was not only real, but a real-time vision of the attack on the Fist of the First Men by the others, which happened some weeks after the Blackwater. What would remain unknown to Stannis and Maester Aemon for the time being is that Jor Mormont had survived that attack, only to be cut down in an act of mutiny by his own men. Davos had found the Aemon letter and connected it with the vision Stannis had described all those weeks ago. Somehow, he saw immediately that Melisandre would find this information significant to her own interpretation of the future. It says, If Melisandre knew of this letter, what was it she had said? One whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power, Davos Seaworth. Soon comes the cold and the night that never ends. And Stannis had seen a vision in the flames, a ring of torches in the snow with terror all around. So Stannis arrived at the northern edge of the realm, he claimed, with the practical goal of defending it from attack by the wildlings, but with the greater intention of facing a foe Melisandre warned him about, but could not or would not name. In spite of, or should we say because of, the favourable winds on their voyage north, allegedly gifted by R'hllor for their sacrifice of the traitor Alistair Florent, Stannis and his army arrived at Castle Black just as the men of the Night's Watch were engaging Mance Raider's massive army. That's right, secure in the knowledge that Jor Mormont and much of the strength of the Night's Watch had been wiped out on the Great Ranging, Mance launched his attack on Castle Black with over 30,000 fighting men and near 100 mammoths and giants. At the same time, the Magnar of Then led his advance party against Castle Black from the south. And led by Don Onoy, the men of the Night's Watch would defeat the Thens and then hold off Mance's attack from above. Don Onoy would die heroically defending the gate from the giant Mag the Mighty who had been sent to breach it and Jon Snow would be left in charge of the defences. But his successful defence would count for little when Alistair Thorne and Janos Slint returned from Eastwatch with reinforcements. Taking Jon into custody as a traitor, they would ultimately send him through the wall to treat with Mance though in reality with orders to kill the Wildling King. Yeah, Jon Snow is basically sent on a suicide mission and finds himself inside Mance's tent as a surprise attack comes from the east. 
What was at first taken to be a mad gambit by Cotter Pike and the men of Eastwatch would turn out to be a screen of rangers, followed by three columns of heavy horse coming from east, north, and northeast. Stannis had arrived beyond the wall, and his attack would soon become a general rout of the massive wildling army. His defeat of the wildling force, numbering upwards of 30,000 with a mere 1,500 men, would be the result of superior tactics, discipline, and the wildling's own lack of both, in spite of Mance's training. And the aftermath of the battle for the wildlings was devastating. Melisandre destroyed Orel's eagle while Varimir was inside it, breaking the wildling skin changer. Steer was killed at Castle Black, Mag the Mighty and a dozen other giants died in the attack on the gate, Harmer Dogset and a thousand others died in the rout by Stannis, while Mance and a thousand more were taken captive, joining Rattleshirt, who had been captured in the diversionary attack at the Bridge of Skulls in the far west, as Stannis's captive. And the aftermath for Jon Snow is very interesting. Stannis loses no time in acquainting himself with the situation at the Wall, and quickly calls on Jon Snow and asks him to join his cause. Dismissing the recent war between rival kings as if he had indeed been the victor, or perhaps as if it didn't even matter, he points beyond the wall and tells John, There is where I'll find the foe I was born to fight, adding, I am the only true king in Westeros, north or south, and you are Ned Stark's bastard. Tywin Lannister has named Roose Bolton his warden of the north to reward him for betraying your brother. The Iron Men are fighting amongst themselves since Balon Greyjoy's death, yet they still hold Moat Caelan, Deepwood Mott, Torrent Square, and most of the Stony Shore. Your father's lands are bleeding, and I have neither the strength nor the time to staunch the wounds. What is needed is a Lord of Winterfell, a loyal Lord of Winterfell. Your Northmen do not know me, have no reason to love me, yet I will need their strength in the battles to come. I need a son of Eddard Stark to win them to my banner. In this he echoed what his great-grand-uncle Maester Aemon knew to be true. The Northmen were absolutely necessary to the defence of the Wall against an attack from the North. As Stannis saw it, the fastest way to rally the Northmen to his side would be to name Ned Stark's son Lord of Winterfell and let him do the work of gathering their support for him. In order to claim the prize he had always dreamed of but never dreamed would be in his grasp, John need only bend his knee to Stannis and pledge to accept Winterfell in R'hllor's name. And that, of course, would be the difficulty for Jon Snow. Not only to turn away from the Night's Watch and his vows, but to turn away from his gods and the gods of his father. And John was spared the uncomfortable necessity of telling Stannis that he had decided to remain true to his vows and his gods when he was chosen 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. As the new Lord Commander, Jon Snow would support Stannis's plan to allow the wildlings through the gate to be settled in the gift. He would also offer Stannis valuable advice in his efforts to recruit Northmen to his cause. Stannis began his efforts by sending messages to those very lords, but with limited response. In A Feast for Crows, it says, The ravens had gone forth from Castle Black in a storm of black wings, summoning the lords of the north to declare for Stannis Baratheon and join their strength to his. 
Sam had sent out most of them himself. Thus far, only one bird had returned, the one they'd sent to Carhold. Elsewise, the silence had been thunderous. And after receiving a scolding rejection from ten-year-old Lyanna Mormont, Stannis wonders to Jon Snow if Arnolf Karstark is the only man of honor in the North. Jon realizes that given Lord Rickard's shameful murder of Lannister children and betrayal of Rob, a King Stannis might seem like the best option for the carhold, making their answer more about self-interest than honor. He also cautions Stannis that the men of the North are likely to be cautious in their decisions, bloodied as they were by their war and stuck now between their long loyalty to the Starks and the new order of Bolton and Lannister. John says that Wyman Manderley would be the key, and Stannis sends word to Eastwatch for Davos to prepare another covert diplomatic mission. That's a role Davos has filled before, and in this case Stannis will be relying upon his successors. The resettlement of the wildlings continues as Melisandre symbolically burns Mance Raider and demands the homage of the captives from the battle in exchange for letting them through the wall to be settled in the gift. As we said, John had agreed to this plan, but he also flat out denied Stannis' request that the Night's Watch cede to him the empty castles of the wall with which to reward his men a position which did not endear him to Stannis. In the meantime, Moore's Crowfood Umber responded to an embassy by Justin Massey and Richard Horpe, saying he would join Stannis under two conditions. He demanded the skull of Mance Raider as a drinking cup and a pardon for his brother Hawther, who had joined with Roose Bolton. John continued to try to explain the complex politics of the North for Stannis, advising him to accept Crowfood's terms, and warning him in no uncertain terms against his plan to lay siege to the Dreadfort. Instead, he advises Stannis to seek the help of the Mountain Clans. While Stannis is stubbornly clinging to the idea of taking the Dreadfort, while the Boltons' main strength was away at Moat Kaelin, defeating the Ironborn garrison there to make way for Roos's return to the north, John gives him the best advice he can muster, and a chance at winning a fierce fighting force some 3,000 strong to his side. Go into the mountains, he says, and... Ask, I said, not beg. It is no good sending messages. Your grace will need to go to them yourself. Eat their bread and salt. Drink their ale. Listen to their pipers. Praise the beauty of their daughters and the courage of their sons. And you'll have their swords. The clans have not seen a king since Torren Stark bent his knee. Your coming does them honour. Okay, so this course of action would eventually bring Stannis to Deepwood Mott, where he would be joined by Alysanne Mormont and her fighters from Bear Island. And from there, the growing army would march on Winterfell, near 5,000 strong, more than triple the numbers he had when he arrived at Eastwatch. The end of A Dance with Dragons will find Stannis at an icy crofter's village only days from Winterfell, just waiting for a break in the snowfall so he could bring the battle to Roose Bolton. And at White Harbor... Davos would plead his case to Wyman Manderley in secret and learn that Ned Stark's son had survived the sack of Winterfell. Manderley would send Davos in search of one of them, telling him, 
Bruce Bolton has Lord Eddard's daughter. To thwart him, White Harbour must have Ned's son and the direwolf. The wolf will prove the boy is who we say he is. Should the dreadfort attempt to deny him? That is my price, Lord Davos. Smuggle me back, my liege lord, and I will take Stannis Baratheon as my king. And so, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, with Davos apparently away seeking Rickon Stark, Wyman Manderley would sit at Winterfell with 300 knights awaiting his return, having responded to Roose Bolton's summons with a relatively small force, considering what he told Davos weeks earlier, I've been building warships for more than a year. Some you saw, but there are many more hidden up the white knife. Even with the losses I've suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other lord north of the Neck. My walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. All this I pledge to do if you will meet my price. So, just as things begin to get interesting in the north, with possible conspiring amongst the various northern lords, Manderley's main force of an unknown disposition, the Boltons at Winterfell, with Stannis nearby poised to make a strike at them, and Jon Snow preparing his own strategy for facing the others at the Wall, things seem to be winding down south of Moat Kaelin. It's far from a decisive victory for the Lannisters, but perhaps one can't blame Cersei for feeling like things are in their favour at last. Only a blind man could fail to see that our war is all but won. Lord Tyrell has Storm's End invested, Riverrun is besieged by the Freys, and my cousin Davin, our new Warden of the West. Lord Redwine's ships have passed through the Straits of Tarth and are moving swiftly up the coast. Only a few fishing boats remain on Dragonstone to oppose Redwine's landing. The castle may hold for some time, but once we have the port, we can cut the garrison off from the sea. Then, only Stannis himself will remain to vex us. So while Stannis was learning how to court Northmen, Cersei was settling in as Queen Regent in the wake of her father's death. Reluctant to cede any power to her youngest son's new in-laws, the Tyrells, she hurried to name a Lannister vassal as Hand and Giles Rosby as treasurer in place of Garth Tyrell as Tywin had planned. After quarrelling with her uncle Kevin, she settled on Harris Swift as Hand, though Swift's tenure would last only until she shuffled him into the office of Lord Treasurer after Rosby's death. And then Cersei replaced Swift with Lord Orton Merriweather, a man who showed signs of being easy to manipulate, in spite of being a reachman, having, as Littlefinger put it, peas porridge for wits. She would follow Jamie's suggestion that Mace Tyrell be sent to recapture Storm's End, being held in Stannis's name by Sir Gilbert Faring, and Mace would take half the Tyrell army and Lord Mathis Rowan to the Stormlands with him, leaving Marjorie apparently vulnerable to her new mother-in-law's machinations. 
but Cersei would show a marked reluctance to listen to any further advice from Jaime, or anyone else for that matter. Jaime himself departed King's Landing to restore order in the Riverlands where Riverrun was under siege by his cousin Davin and Sir Forley Prester, Seaguard by Black Walder Frey and Raventree Hall by Jonas Bracken. With Gregor Clegane's men leaderless at Harrenhal, Lancel not doing much beside praying at Derry, and broken men roaming the countryside, along with a new, more vindictive Brotherhood Without Banners, under the leadership of a mysterious woman known as Lady Stoneheart, or Mother Merciless, Jamie would have his work more than cut out for him. And in the meantime, Lord Paxter Redwine was making his way to King's Landing to assume command of a planned assault on Dragonstone. Around this same time, news had arrived from Dorne of the attack on Myrcella, and Dorne Martell was insisting that Gregor's head was the only thing that would defuse the situation. Plans were being made to send Sir Balon Swan with the head, but news was coming from other parts of the realm as well, and its quality was decidedly mixed. Here the Lord's declarant of the Vale wrote to say that they planned to lay siege to the Eyrie and remove Littlefinger as Lord Protector in the wake of Lady Liza's death. Cersei had just enough loyalty to Littlefinger to reply that the Crown wished him to remain unharmed but was otherwise not very bothered with the fate of young Robert Arryn. Nearby, Wyman Manderley had set up an elaborate farce of imprisonment and execution of Stannis's hand, Lord Davos Seaworth, aimed at showing his loyalty to the Lannisters and achieving the release of his surviving son, Wyllas, whom Jaime would be instructed to release from his imprisonment at Harrenhal. Interestingly, Cersei didn't seem to interpret those particular items as very significant, while the news that the Golden Company had broken its contract with Mir barely seemed to register, and Jon Snow being named Lord Commander of the Night's Watch registered mainly as an annoyance. In other news, the death of the High Septon was not the surprise it should have been, considering she herself had ordered Osney Kettleblack to smother him with a pillow. All in all, these things would come to have serious consequences for Cersei, the Lannisters, and Westeros in general, but she remained almost entirely focused on her paranoia over the Tyrells. It was around this time she would also make the decision to instruct Sir Osney Kettleblack to seduce Queen Marjorie. And also of note, Cersei had named Orain Waters, the bastard of Driftmark, as her Lord Admiral. Waters was the half-brother of Lord Monford Valerian, who had died fighting for Stannis in the Inferno of the Blackwater. He himself had fought for Stannis, but had bent the knee along with many others in the aftermath of the battle. Trusting a young, inexperienced captain who had only recently come over from the enemy with the rebuilding of the royal fleet was one of Cersei's many poor decisions in this time and earned her the scorn and incredulity of Jaime before his departure from the capital. 
Podorain was handsome and charming, and as with her friends the Kettleblacks and the Merryweathers, Cersei had absolute confidence in her own power to manipulate them, and she remained stubbornly certain that she could not allow a seasoned and capable man like Paxter Redwine anywhere near the royal command due to his close association with the Tyrells. At the same time, Cersei took her eye off the sudden accumulation of begging brothers or sparrows in the capital, naming it the Faith's Problem. When the Faith chose their new High Septon from among those very sparrows, she would take notice, but would continue to underestimate the power of the Faith in the realm, even going so far as to accept the rearming of the Faith militant in a reversal of over 250 years of royal policy. And so Cersei would carry on, in Littlefinger's words, stumbling from one idiocy to the next, ultimately undermining her own position with each move she made. When news arrived of Euron Greyjoy's assault on the Reach, she would take the opportunity to send Sir Loras Tyrell to Dragonstone to hasten the assault, so that Paxter Redwine would be free to return to his own waters, having fulfilled his duty to the crown. As she focused on stripping protections from Marjorie Tyrell, Cersei failed to notice that she herself was in a similar position, and that her plotting and her own behaviour left her in as much, if not more, danger than the young queen was in. And speaking of Euron, the Ironborn captains had spoken at the king's moot and chosen him as their new king. In the wake of the moot, Asha Greyjoy had fled with her supporters, Aeron had vanished, and Victarion was placed in command of a fleet that was charged with sailing for Slaver's Bay to bring Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons back for Euron to wed. Euron would continue his assault on the Reach, with Sam Tarly seeing the aftermath of a sea battle as he arrived in Old Town not long afterwards. Cersei's idiocy would reach its height when she sent Sir Osney Kettleblack to the new High Septon, whom she had just gifted with the power to create an army, to confess that he had seduced Marjorie and two of her cousins. In point of fact, the queen that Osney had really bedded was Cersei herself, which he would confess to under torture by the faith, as well as to the little matter of who gave him the order to kill the previous High Septon. Cersei's arrest would follow, and chaos would begin to descend on King's Landing as the Tyrells would more or less abandon the Siege of Storm's End and move to save Marjorie and seize power for themselves. The Hand or to Merryweather would flee, Orain Waters would predictably abscond with the new royal fleet, and the Faith would seem poised to become the real power in the capital. One little dragon could end this great big war. And so, as chaos threatened to overtake the Lannisters, who had seemed triumphant such a short while before, there were still a number of wildcards whose effects can't yet be measured. And we have a couple of light Winds of Winter spoilers here. 
In the wake of Cersei's arrest, news would begin to filter northwards that a young man, claiming to be the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, had landed in the Stormlands. Having entered into covert communication with Aegon and John Connington, and unbeknownst to anyone in the capital, Dorne was poised to finally get involved in the power struggle that had engulfed the kingdom, bringing one of two previously uncommitted armies in the realm to the fore. So, as we've discussed in our episode on Aegon, he was part of a plot that at one point involved marrying the boy to Daenerys Targaryen and invading Westeros with their combined forces and joint claims. But neither Aegon nor Danny had behaved as expected of them, and with Danny having established herself as Queen of Marine in Slaver's Bay, while her young nephew sailed to Westeros to claim the throne, she still sees as her birthright. It seems like we're being set up for a rivalry rather than an alliance. And at the same time, there's a potentially parallel situation in the North, with Sansa in the Vale apparently part of a plot by Peter Baelish to finally bring the Vale army into the war by revealing her identity and leveraging the power of the Vale to reclaim her birthright of Winterfell. Meanwhile, if indeed Rob Stark named Jon Snow as his heir shortly before the Red Wedding and his surviving lords are taking steps to secretly uphold that wish, as the fan theory of the Grand Northern Conspiracy suggests, there is yet another rivalry brewing with the potential to make big waves in an already war-torn country. Okay, and these old things we'll be addressing in our upcoming The Winds of Winter Primer series. We mention them here only to offer a recap of how things stand in Westeros as the War of the Five Kings winds down. With so much chaos left in its wake, and the fact that not much at all was settled by the long months of battles and many lives were lost, ultimately it's hard to view the War of the Five Kings as anything other than a precursor to what's to come in the Winds of Winter. With Aegon's invasion and Danny's expected arrival, Stannis fighting Boltons and a power struggle in the capital, peace doesn't look to be arriving in Westeros any time soon. Remembering Melisandre's caution to Stannis after Robb Stark's death, more false kings will soon rise to take up the crowns of those who've died. But there are those who know that the others are the real enemy. As Stannis tells Jon Snow, quote, The more we bleed each other, the weaker we shall all be when the real enemy falls upon us. And that will be the real struggle in the Winds of Winter and beyond, the battle of light versus darkness, in which, according to Melisandre, everyone, man or woman, young or old, lord or peasant, must choose a side. We choose light or we choose darkness. We choose good or we choose evil. We choose the true god or the false. And in the face of that struggle... It's likely all the wars that have gone before will begin to seem like so much child's play. Demons, made of snow and ice and cold. The ancient enemy, the only enemy that matters. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our series on the War of the Five Kings. And don't forget to check out parts one and two if you miss them. 
We'll be back soon with the next installment of our Myths and Legends series. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R. R. Martin for A Song of Ice and Fire and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here, too. Heartfelt thanks to Mark Joseph, The Snow in Winterfell, Alexis, Amber, Chris K, Marja the Mage, Jessica, June, Rusted Revolver, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melitza, Yorlan, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Eliana Targaryen, Casey, Boss, Arrow Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words or Wind, Deeds or Stone, Joy, Whitney, Marcel, Matthew, Aaron, Sasha, Aileen, the podcast lawyer, and Lady Diarless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Trish, Melinda, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arian, Princess Zandico of the Summer Isles, Chris V, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Rebea, Lady of the Waves, Steve, Zainab, Jeff, Gnarly the Long Snapper, Rebecca, Jean A., Megan, Yvonne, Mama J., Mother to Cripples, Bastards and Broken Ones, Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Menon, Rachel, Felix, Brian, Matt, James M., Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael, Jason, Tanner, Iden, Quincy, Amber, Dimitri, Scott, Ellie, Pat, Direwolf, Martin, Javier, Spentrail, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, Mary, the Buckeye Knight, whose sigil is a hanged wolverine, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, and Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with more Myths and Legends. Bye for now.